0: I'm Jonathan Bastion. this week on KCRW's Life Examined. When it comes to feeling blue, most of us look to distract ourselves from sadness and dark thoughts. But could sadness be beneficial, even therapeutic?
1: Instead of this longing being connected to a kind of wallowing in depression, which is the way contemporary culture would interpret it, it has historically been seen as the pathway to Our most creative selves, our most connected selves, you know, all our religions teach us that longing is the pathway to belonging.
0: And later, what's the biological function of feeling the darker emotions?
1: If you look, for example, at our vagus nerve, which is the biggest bundle of nerves in our bodies, it's evolutionarily an ancient part of us. It governs our breathing. And also the vagus nerve is what becomes activated when we see somebody crying or you know, the child down the well. So yeah, this is really encoded into us physically.
0: the Bitter Sweets with writer Susan Kane That's coming up on Life Examined. Chances are, at one point or another, you've experienced a feeling of sadness and longing, triggered by a sweet memory, perhaps of something that happened long ago, a farewell, a passage of time, or a broken heart. The same feeling has inspired some of our most beloved artists. From Shakespeare to Joni Mitchell and Picasso, great works have the ability to capture and reflect on the despair within— and touch on a sweetness that comes with sorrow and sadness. So, why do we yearn for these feelings of sweet sadness? Should we embrace the dark feelings more often? Is it beneficial, and how much is too much when it comes to sadness? In her most recent book, Bitter Sweet How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole, writer and lecturer susan kane explores the nature of sadness how we're evolutionarily attuned to cope with life's ups and downs and how historically it's been viewed as a path to creativity and joy well susan kane it's great to have you for the full hour of life examines welcome to the show
1: thank you so much for having me jonathan i'm so happy to be here
0: i want to jump in by by discussing something that you've talked about and you've written about which is this idea of longing to live in a more perfect and beautiful world um, I'm so interested in this idea. Where where does it come from and how does it tie into what you're writing about?
1: Well, this book started with me trying to solve what at first seemed like a kind of smallish size mystery, Mm. which is why some of us so much love sad music. um, And why it can be that listening to that kind of music doesn't actually make us feel sad at all, but instead kind of taps into some state of longing that is closer to communion and transcendence and a feeling of connection with all the other people who kind of know the the sorrow that the musician is straining to express um, and the wondrousness of being able to transform that sorrow into something beautiful. Mm. All all that is embedded in that kind of music. And I was trying to understand why why this should be. And, And so I did, do a lot of research into sad music itself that we could talk about. But but that quickly led me to going deeper into what you might call the bittersweet tradition in mm. general, which has been with us for thousands of years across every culture that I could see. Um, and you see it in our religions and our artistic traditions and our literary ones. and um, And you could kind of sum it up with the idea of humans having a fundamental longing for, as you say, for a more perfect and beautiful world. Um, In our religions, we express that as the longing for Eden or for Mecca or for Zion. And secularly, we express it as the longing for somewhere over the rainbow. Right. Um, We come into this world in that state, you know, we we come into this world in tears, and, and you can interpret that psychoanalytically as longing for the womb it almost doesn't matter how you interpret it. The The real point is that this is a fundamental state for humans, but that instead of this longing being connected to a kind of wallowing in depression, which is the way contemporary culture would interpret it, it has historically been seen as as the pathway to our most creative selves, our most connected selves, um, you know, all our religions teach us that longing is the pathway to belonging. Right. So instead of us turning our backs on, on this fundamental state, we should be going deeper into it.
0: Yeah, that's a, a beautiful opening. And some of those images, as you say, we we come into this world as babies crying and missing this place of warmth and safety. And, and that image really stays with me. And help me Define even more bittersweet, and you know, you we we do associate it with with depressive states or grief or mourning. How how did you come to understand or put words around around bittersweet?
1: Yeah, and and bittersweetness really is quite different from clinical depression. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be a difference of of degree rather than kind. I'm not sure, but the fact is that it's different. Um, and bittersweetness is about the awareness that joy and sorrow and light and dark are forever paired and that everything that we love most dearly, everyone we love most dearly, it's all impermanent. Mm. Um, and yet wrapped up in, in that awareness is the seed of a kind of really deep and almost piercing joy at the beauty of the world. Um, And and this has been expressed artistically in so many different ways, but it's also really interesting to look at psychological studies and so on, which have found that people who, because of their life circumstance, have been primed to understand how fragile life is, that that those people tend to um, have a great sense of meaning in their lives, tend to focus a lot on their deepest relationships, have a great sense of gratitude are much less prone to a hair trigger anger all, all of this comes with an awareness of fragility itself which is ironic because that's the last thing we're really supposed to talk about
0: mm. i i think so much of of the missing of a person somebody who has passed or the ending of a relationship and how often in the kind of early acute stages of grief it's it, it seems mostly sad oftentimes but but one does eventually get to a place where they um they see it also as beautiful or they miss the person or they remember the great qualities of something that has passed uh, something impermanent does that does that speak to what you're saying a bit
1: it does um though i mean grief is such a complicated and personal experience um I, I i i actually while i was writing this book i lost both my father and my brother mm. to covid and wow, um, i'm so sorry oh thank you you know it was i don't know what the word for that experience was but i it was interesting let's say that i had been working on this book and writing it for years before this happened so so when it happened, it was like, oh my gosh, all these themes that I've been immersed in for all these years are like now playing out for me personally. Yeah, and there was this sense that the very first few days in both cases, I remember not being able to shake the nausea. There, there was like literally a physical nausea that yeah. came from just from the fact of like, you know, just the, the sheer like enormity of that, shift in in my yeah. personal cosmos um i did find in time that that all i i did find in time that that all this awareness that i had about the nature of reality was helpful in 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 working it all through but and and what i what i also realized you know from studying the work of george banano um at columbia who's a grief researcher he's actually found that most of us, um, I think it's all but 10% of us, if I'm getting the statistic right, most of us are much more resilient in the face of grief than we expect to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could say as humans, we're, we're evolutionarily designed for it because we've always been beings who lost our loved ones and were aware of it, you know, and we're aware that it was coming. Um, so most of us are more resilient than we think. But then there are something like 10% of us who really do face a kind of chronic grief that's very, very hard to shake. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say whether we're in the resilient camp or the chronic camp, um, there is a universality of all of us being in it together that I have found to be enormously sustaining. And that's part of what I see as the riches of the bittersweet tradition, you know, this kind of it's a kind of, once you tap into it, it's a kind of induction into a society that mm. contains all humans. Yeah. So
0: how would you say that that grief and bittersweetness would be similar or different? I, I don't want to take us off, off the hunt of what you were really getting at here, but I, I found that the, the way you described it, uh, the grief there was was also really well said.
1: I mean, I think there's something about grief where you're just you're overwhelmed and overcome by the rawness of it. There's a kind of horror at it. There's mm. a rage at it. There's a, you know, like a terrible despair. All of that comes um, during the moments of most intense grief. And um, and I think bittersweetness is a kind of quieter emotion that exists before and after the grief. Or, you know, as, as Bonanno points out even for those of us who are having a, a, quote, resilient response, grief comes and goes. So it's like you could be, you know, the the day after you lose someone, you could be laughing at the memory of something funny they said, and 50 years later, you could be on your knees weeping at their memory. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not like this is all a a neat and clean (laughs) distinction. Um, But but there's something about bittersweetness that's a, a more quiet interaction with this nature of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you get people like like uh, Abraham Maslow, you know, the great psychologist, um,
0: Maslow's pyramid,
1: yeah, Maslow's pyramid, That's exactly. Right.
0: hierarchy of needs, yeah,
1: yeah. and you know he's he's very much associated with positive psychology in its original um, formulation, but he in reality, he had a much more nuanced approach to life and he talked about how he had some of his most intensely transcendent experiences where he really felt kind of removed from his own self and connected to to all of being that that he had that feeling like during the months before his death I think it was after he had had a heart attack and was made to feel intensely aware of how fleeting life was you know for him that was that was connected in a quiet yet very deep way with um, with this sense of connection. And that has been borne out in many studies. So he's just one person reporting his experience of it.
0: Mm. Can you say more about that or, or any of those studies?
1: Yeah, okay, so Laura Karstensen, she is a psychologist at Stanford, and she focuses on older people and on, on the aged. And what she found is, as she puts it, that older people in general are happier, um, which may be surprising to us, but she, she found that older people of these states I was describing of, um, of, of having a great sense of meaning and gratitude and, and um, less likely to kind of be disgruntled by, by everyday events. Mm-hmm. Um, and at first she assumed that this was due to that folk wisdom of, of age somehow conferring wisdom. But then what she found is that it isn't the age per se that that creates these emotional cha- positive emotional changes. It's rather the awareness of life's fragility. It's the fact that older people are aware that they don't have that much time left. And the reason that she found this out is because she also looked at younger people who, because of their life circumstances, were also aware of of life's fragility, um, so she looked at people who who were young, but who were experiencing the SARS epidemic in Hong Kong um, at the turn of the 21st century. Um, she looked at people in in politically uh, precarious situations, and she kept finding this same profile, even if the people were young. So, it's not the age itself; it's the it's the it's the mind shift. It's the awareness of life's bittersweetness and of life's impermanence. That's really the key to this other mind state mm. that I think we all want to reach, um, but we don't. We don't all want to necessarily wait till we're eighty years old to get there. And um, and the good news is that there are lots of ways to get there. And in fact, I asked her what she would recommend, and the first thing she said was listening to sad music. So there oh. you go.
0: I want to get to the sad music in just a moment, but, but when you say words like impermanence, I, I can't help but think of just ancient philosophies like Buddhism and ways of seeing the world that remind us that things are constantly changing. The things that are before us can be gone before we even know, and that all of this brings us back to a gratitude for the present moment. Is that kind of aligned with what you're talking about?
1: it it is aligned um and yet i i really wanted to push that a little bit because well in the chapter on grief or i guess i wrote about grief in a couple chapters but anyway um i wrote about a japanese buddhist poet his name was issa i s s a and he, he he's considered one of great um japan's great masters of the haiku form and he wrote this amazing poem Soon after, his young daughter had died of smallpox. And this was a man who had waited until midlife to have children. His first few children, I believe, um, like died at birth. And then he finally has this beautiful, seemingly healthy daughter until she succumbs at the age of two or three or something to, to smallpox. And he writes this poem after. He's obviously stricken by grief. He's Buddhist, so he's deeply aware of... Impermanence, um, and he writes this poem where he says, "I know that this world of dew is dew d e w. I know that this world of dew is just a world of dew, but even so, and hmm. those three words, but even so, I, I just found them so moving because he's basically saying, you know, I get it about impermanence. I get it about impermanence." and yet it's still really difficult, you know, even for me, who's been, me, Issa, who's been trained as a Buddhist all my life. Um, And what I take from that is he's writing this poem because he knows that the people who are reading it have had the same experience. He knows that it's difficult for all of us, you know, that all of us are feeling, but even so, but even Mm. so. And there's something about the fact that we all feel that that's why we write in the first place and in a way that or and that's why we read and that's why we engage in art or any other form of communication it's like that's the real truth the fact that we're in this together and that and the the expression of what it's what it really means to be alive and what it really means to feel these things. Um, that there's a kind of moment of communion that, that you feel when you hear those things. And that's why we go to concerts in the first place because we experience, at, at those concerts, you experience these fleeting moments um, where you know the, the musician is expressing something that's deeply true that they've also managed to convert into something beautiful and into something communal. And that's what we're there for. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that poem is... Is is amazing, and it, I mean, it's as if even if we understand the nature of the world or the nature of impermanence, or that this is the way things are, there's still the emotional side of us that wants to to say, "Hold on, wait, no, I I don't I don't want to give it all up. I don't want. I'm not ready for this to be true." It, it's like, as you say, a longing. something or a a grasping.
1: Yeah, there's a, well, it's interesting. You use those two words, longing and grasping. And I actually thought about this a lot because, um, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, as I understand it, the uh, grasping is the thing you want to not be doing, right? Like you you don't want to be, um, unhelpfully attached to that, which you can't change, um, or to the things you most desire. Um, and I was very confused about the difference between that and the idea of longing which the which in Sufism is like at the heart of the tradition, the idea mm. that longing itself is what delivers you to the state that you seek, to 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 belonging. And, and and that's echoed in 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 most mystical traditions. So I actually went all the way to a a Sufi retreat led by a teacher named Llewellyn von Lee. Huh. Um and, and I asked I asked him this question because he, he's always talking about in in his writings and in his videos, um he's always talking about the primacy of this state of longing. And um and so I asked him what the question of what's the difference between that state of longing and the state of craving that, that Buddhism warns against or teaches against. And um I was so happy about his answer because it, it kind of echoed what my intuition had been but couldn't quite make sense of, you know, and he said they really are two completely different things. Um, the Buddhist idea of craving is that you're you're craving for a kind of possession of, of things that you can't change, you know, or you're craving for like an attached version of love in which you not only love the person but also possess them in some way. Mm. Um, that you love the person because they're yours, and not just because you love them. Um, whereas longing is much more about like the state of longing for that which is good and true and beautiful, and like the the state of true love. Um, or you know, in in religious terms, you're longing for union with the divine, and 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 that's a really different state from the more unhelpful version of craving. Even though the difference is so subtle,
0: yeah, yeah. Or in in a romantic relationship, or when you're alone, the, the craving of partnership or intimacy or connection—that too.
1: Yeah, and I mean, and the, the craving for connection when you're alone—it's a, I, I think it's a natural and positive craving. Um, I think what is helpful to understand in romance, and I, I I write about this, is that if we're not aware of this deep-seated longing that all beings have for you know call it for eden or whatever it is um you know what happens when when you enter like an amazing romantic relationship at the beginning you kind of feel like you and your partner together have have attained the ultimate belonging like you've gotten to eden together um and then what ends up happening is you know you start realizing oh actually my partner has their imperfections, <laughs> and so do right, I. And right, right. we're not actually in Eden after all. Um, you know, that was <laughs> that was fleeting. Um, and, and if you're not paying attention to these dynamics, you can think that there's something wrong with the relationship as opposed to understanding that this is just kind of the state of being human. You know, and you can like exit the relationship and think, okay, I have to get to the next one where it'll, that one will be the thing that I've been longing for all this time um so it can be very helpful to understand these dynamics at the same time that it's also true that those moments where you and your partner occasionally do reach those those times of eden like that those are some of the the best and most meaningful things that will ever happen to you
0: we'll be back with Susan Kane after this short break but first a big thank you to those who continue to join our new life examined facebook group when i asked you what topics you would like to hear on the show this summer and fall Yvette Kaplan wanted to hear, quote, how different climates affect and maybe even form a human sense of self, which is a great idea. And J.C. Kangilla said, would love to hear stories about midlife change. You can find the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. Introducing the KCRW donation car, designed to be recycled, we're continuing our conversation with Susan Cain, writer, lecturer, and author of *Bitter Sweet: How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. In her book, Cain explains that our nervous systems, the parts of our bodies responsible for things like breathing and heart rate, have evolved to feel sadness and compassion. In fact, she argues our sadness is what makes us human. So should we try and reframe or rethink our expectations for a happy life? Let's jump right back into the conversation. You've talked about this, I think, so far, and I think really important aesthetic or, or spiritual, emotional ways, but you've looked at this too um, as how we might understand this as a biological or evolutionary function of who we are. Like, what What is the purpose that this might play in our bodies or in our biology? Where does it come from?
1: Our ability to express sorrow and to respond to other people's sorrow and be helpful um or respond with love to other people's sorrow that is encoded in us in a deep evolutionary way Mm. um so we think of darwin as being about survival of the fittest and that's true um but there's another aspect to darwin that is much less talked about uh he he writes i think it's in the descent of man he writes about how his observation that the impulse that that you see not only in humans but also in animals, um, the impulse when they see another fellow animal in distress, the kind of impulse to to help them. and he documented all these different instances of animals doing this. Now he was doing this at the same time that he was also like horrified by all all the cruelty that he observed um, within animal groupings. Um so he was it wasn't like he was a Pollyanna who was only seeing the bright side, he was kind of aware of both sides. Um, But he talked about this. And then you trace this into human beings. And you look at modern science, and you have people like Dacher Keltner at at, uh, Berkeley, who's done all this research into what he calls the compassionate instinct. And he's found that as humans, our, we, we have basically evolved to respond to each other's distress and this is because the only way we could survive is if we could respond to the tears of our infants who are too vulnerable to take care of themselves Um, but that ability of the mother to respond to her own baby kind of radiates outward from there so that other adults can respond to other people's babies and then to other kinds of beings also in distress and we know this because if you look for example at our vagus nerve which is the biggest bundle of nerves in our bodies. Um, It's so fundamental. It's like evolutionarily an ancient part of us. Uh, It it governs our breathing and our digestion. And also the vagus nerve is what becomes activated when we see somebody crying or, you know, the child down the well. Your vagus nerve at that point is going to kind of impel you into action because it's it makes you feel as if you're not okay until you relieve um, that other person's distress. So, so yeah, this is really encoded into us physically.
0: So, I, the argument being that the fact that we can feel someone else's sorrow or notice it in the world around us is really an expression of of empathy. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it really is, and 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 of course, people talk about um, you know the. the the perils of empathy, um, one of them being that you can get a kind of like fatigue out of feeling too much of what other people are feeling, and and that's certainly a thing. Um, And then there's also the way in which it gets, Paul Bloom talks about this, the the psychologist Paul Bloom talks about um, the perils of like, if you only follow the way our bodies are designed to react, you can end up reacting much more viscerally to to the story of a single kitten fallen down a well than you might to the story of 10,000 people fleeing their country just mm. because, because that's how our bodies are kind of designed to process um, stories or images of, of others suffering. So it's not to say that, like, you don't want to follow <laughs> the naturalistic fallacy that however we're designed must be the right thing. Um, you know, we, we want to be... Also bringing our cognition to bear and using these powers that we have as smartly as as wisely as we can, um, but they are there. Yeah, to be to to be harnessed.
0: We often think of harnessing these these emotions, these instincts through art, and it's interesting how we we started this conversation with your reflection on music and. You know, it's still interesting. Anytime you go through a relationship or a breakup or whatever it is, you turn the radio on and there's that song every single time, right? It's just, we we can't avoid this stuff. It's just, it just always hits us again and again and again. And if it wasn't for these emotions, would we even have art? So I I kind of open the question to you as to where, where you've taken this.
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. And I'm not sure that we would. Um, I think we've all had that intuition. And Aristotle asked that question 2000 years ago, he asked, why is it that um, so many of the great poets and philosophers and uh, politicians, why do they, why, do why do so many of them seem to have melancholic personalities? Um, you know, and you, you take that research up into the present day. And like psychologists have looked at some of the most creative people and an astonishingly, astonishingly high percentage of them were orphans as children. Huh. Um, and then, which is not to say by any means that you should be an art orphan, God knows, or that you could be, or or that you must be one in order to produce art. That's, that's not the point at all. Um, but just to say that there seems to be something about um, being confronted by loss and sorrow, and then having the, that longing impulse to turn it into something more beautiful or more generative, that seems to be at the heart of the creative impulse. Um, you know, there was one study that I talk about where the researchers took a group of subjects, uh, of people <laughs> who they were experimenting on, and they had them give speeches without telling them that the audiences had been primed so that in half the cases, the people were giving speeches to audiences who were very appreciative and clapped a lot. And then in the other half, the people gave speeches to audiences who had been instructed to be very disapproving um, and to not give much applause. And sure enough, the people in that second group came out feeling pretty low. and, And both groups were asked afterwards to make collages, which were rated for creativity later by a group of artists, and the ones who had given speeches to the disapproving audiences produced much better collages than the ones who hadn't. And this effect was especially true for people who had come in with a kind of hormonal profile that showed that they tended to be more emotionally vulnerable in the first place. So there seems to be this connection and again the connections not with depression because clinical depression is actually terrible for creativity um you know it's a kind of emotional numbness um but there is something about being attuned to life's ups and downs that seems to be like a a catalyst to this transformative impulse to to take it and turn it into something else and something better yeah
0: two two thoughts come, come racing through my mind as you were talking about that. I remember a writer had this saying once, and I can't remember, but that happiness is like white paint on a white canvas. You almost can't, you can't even see it. And then I also think of Paul Bloom, who you mentioned, who was on this program and we were talking about meaning and happiness and how he talked about one theory in which meaning or happiness exists oftentimes in contrasts. We need the the light and the dark to even be able to see the two of them. And that's also what I'm hearing you say a little bit, is that there needs to be some level of contrast to produce something beautiful or significant or something artistic.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And... um One perfect example of that is the cherry blossom, Hmm. you know, and you ask like, why is it that people all over the world and especially the Japanese, but all over the world love cherry blossoms so much because they are beautiful flowers, but they're not, it's not like they're loved because they are the most beautiful. The reason that they're loved so much is because they're beautiful and they're extremely impermanent. They're, they're gone days after they appear. Um and the Japanese call this, and I may be mispronouncing this, but they have a term called Mano no aware, um, which basically means it's like a gentle sadness at at how ephemeral everything is, how ephemeral beauty is. There and, and so it's like the cherry blossom contains that contrast in its very essence.
0: Hmm. Yeah, exactly. I remember just seeing the cherry blossoms in, in New York just a week ago and <laughs> feeling something very similar that they were for their few weeks.
1: Yeah, and did, did you also feel that, that sense of like, there's an almost physical yearning that's both, that's both sad and uplifting simultaneously when you're aware of it. Did, did you feel that when you were looking at them?
0: In many ways, yeah, because they were the only thing that were in bloom. They were just, Mm. they were the one bright spot in Prospect Park that you could see coming to life after a long, cold winter, and with it, the recognition that they wouldn't be there for much longer, but other things may come, and so there was something special about that.
1: Yeah, and and, and that point that you made at the very end is also really key, Um, and, and other things will come, I don't remember the exact words you just used, but one of the real awarenesses that I've gotten from being immersed in this topic for the last few years is just the sense of like how dizzyingly quickly everything changes and like you know thing a is constantly giving way to thing b to thing c to thing d um, and we tend to assume that the narrative of life is like You know it kind of goes from birth to death and then you're done or like um you know a good things a good thing happens and then it's over and then you're sad about but but once you really become aware of of changes happening constantly you stop looking at it that way you know and it's more like you're constantly passing from a a joyous experience to a so-so one to a not good one to another joyous one it's like um the change is really constant, and 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 I find that makes me that helps me to resist each change less because you really never know what's coming. That's right, but always something is.
0: Yeah, yeah. Keeping this on art for a moment, were there artists or or pieces of art or music that you just really felt deeply embodied a lot of the concepts that we're talking about?
1: Oh well, I mean, I. How dedicated. much time do we have? I'm sure. Yeah, exactly, because. <laughs> I mean, there's so many. And in fact, I created a bittersweet playlist, which people can find on Spotify or Apple, wherever people listen, Um, because music embodies this, I think, above all. But for me, my my patron saint, like my whole life has been Leonard Cohen, Um, Mm. and I actually dedicated the book in his memory. And I write about how I have loved him my whole life, but i never really paid attention to why exactly. I just knew I loved his music. Um, but it was really only after he died a few years ago that I started looking more into his life and his life philosophy. And, um, he, I guess like me, he, he was born Jewish, remained Jewish, but was also a real seeker and exploring many different traditions. But in some way, one, in some ways, one of the traditions that he drew on the most deeply is the Kabbalah, which is the mystical side of Judaism. And in particular, the idea from the Kabbalah that we live in a world that's simultaneously beautiful and broken. Um, And and that idea infuses all his music. But this, this one metaphor from the Kabbalah I have found to be so transformative in how to think about life's gorgeous, ...ness and imperfection. Um, so the th- this idea, this metaphor is that all of creation was originally an intact divine vessel, but that vessel then shattered. And the world that we're living in now is the world after that breakage. Mm. Um, and so it's a world of brokenness, but it's also a world in which the shards from that vessel are lying scattered everywhere around us. And we, each of us have the power to pick some of them up, you know, to notice them and to pick them up and you might pick up different ones from the ones that I notice and I pick up. Um, and I find that metaphor incredibly helpful for like understanding that the world is never going to be what we wish it will be. Um, that utopia doesn't exist here on this earth, but that doesn't mean that it can't be better. Um, and it doesn't mean that there aren't like, these amazing places of beauty, love, communion, you know, all the things we seek the most. They're still here around us.
0: And I can't help but think of the very famous Leonard Cohen line, "There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in.
1: Yeah, and that's the epigraph of, uh, of my book, yeah. Oh, Bittersweet. Yeah, uh, very intentionally, because that's really the philosophy distilled so why do you
0: think we as a culture are so, are so resistant to the, the minor keys of life or the bittersweetness or sorrow? You know, we had Laurie Santos on recently of the Yale University in the Happiness Lab and, and kind of just exploring a lot of these questions of how it feels that we are a happiness-obsessed Culture, not not one that wants to honor a lot of the things that you're talking about. Why? Why is that? Do you think?
1: I think it's because I, I I trace in the book the historical roots of all this, and I mean it's probably too much to go into here, but to say it kind of simply that, um, especially in the 19th century, as the culture became more and more focused on commerce hmm. and on worldly success. Um, it became really important for people to understand why they might be succeeding or failing at business um, compared to other people around them. And whereas it used to be that if somebody failed, you know, if somebody went into bankruptcy, let's say, there was a sense that if you lost, it was because misfortune had frowned upon you. You know, you, you were you were the victim of bad luck or external circumstances or whatever it is. But people started to ask the question increasingly, well, maybe it's something inside the person. Maybe it's not bad luck or, or outside forces. Maybe it's something inside the person that makes them a success or a failure. And we went from asking that question to concluding that the answer was, yeah, it probably is something inside the person. Um, <laughs> and we started dividing people into winners and losers. And you can literally trace the growth of the word loser. Um, it continues to grow in usage even now. And uh, you know, you have headlines, even from like the time of the Great Depression, There, there were newspaper headlines that would say things like, Loser commits suicide in street after going bankrupt. Mm. Um, And and once you understand this, like, of course, it becomes a matter of desperate importance to show to yourself and to the world that you are one of the winners and not one of the losers. And so, of course, you're not going to want to be talking about loss or bittersweetness or sorrow or longing or anything like that, because those would be the... Emotional concerns of somebody who's very familiar with loss or with being a loser—you don't want to do that. Um, so instead, you put the smile on your face. You, you know, whistle cheerfully through your troubles. You, you act as if you have no familiarity with the sorrow side of the joy and sorrow equation, and that's that's how we've ended up with this kind of lopsided emotional profile that we're now living with. Mm.
0: Yeah, this this just unending, unceasing question. What's what's wrong with me? What have I done? How can I how can I get better? Right? It, it's almost very egotistical in many senses at the root of it.
1: Oh yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. It's like an egotism that that comes from a sense of like desperateness is the word that uh, that comes to my mind. Of like, I I I got to show that I'm okay. Like, I've got to show that I'm measuring up. Um, Yeah, and so it it became, you can trace this, it became in the 19th century just like increasingly distasteful to talk about anything that had to do with the negative side of life, you know, and I I think it was William James who was writing about how in many households it became um, not appropriate even to talk about bad weather, (laughs) like you were never supposed to talk about anything negative.
0: How did that continue into the more modern day? I mean, We started coming across things like positive psychology, which I think almost said, to to use the word of another guest, that you have a right to be happy. That if you're not happy, you need to be doing things differently. And I sometimes wonder the anxiety that places on the individual and the expectations for how one should feel oftentimes.
1: Yeah, the anxiety, and also I guess what I'm really saying fundamentally with this book is that being able to exist in the place where light and dark meet is actually not a recipe for unhappiness. It's a recipe for a deeper kind of happiness. Mm -hmm. That's really what I'm saying. Um, You know, there is a deep sense of meaning and creativity and communion that comes from being able to inhabit that middle place. And, um and mainstream positive psychology has not helped people get to that to that place I'm happy to say that is starting to turn around um you know in the first few decades of positive psychology I think there was understandably you know a, a feeling of like let's only look at optimism and you know the things that that put a gigantic grin on our faces yeah um but more recently, there have been practitioners in the field who are starting to realize that there's other states of human experience that that we should be bearing witness to and that have value um so people like i don't know how to say his last name but tim loma l-o-m-a-s has been writing about this and dr paul wong um, and scott barry kaufman who also helped me create the bittersweet quiz that people can take that's at the beginning of this book there, so there are people who are starting to understand that, uh, that these dimensions of human experience are some of the most valuable ones we have.
0: How would you suggest we experience bittersweetness? Is there a way for one to, to access it? Can one go too far with it? I'm thinking almost practically, what, what would you tell our listeners?
1: The first thing I would say is to immerse yourself in beauty. Um, You know that beauty is the quickest way to get there. Um, There is a kind of experience that I think we've all had of beholding something that is so beautiful that it brings tears to your eyes. And the reason it brings those tears is because the beauty itself is a representation of that more perfect and beautiful Garden of Eden world that we long for. It's like a glimpse of it. It's like you're glimpsing it for a moment and then you're reminded that you're not actually there and there's a gap between that world and the one we actually inhabit. Um, But so that's at once sorrowful, but it also stimulates in, in us this kind of generative longing to get closer to that world. And all of that happens without us realizing it when... We interact with beauty, so I would say to start to start each day by interacting with it. Um, In our teams at work, we could be doing exercises like, you know, start the day by people bringing in um, something they find beautiful and sharing it with others, and uh, and that alone, like that's not even speaking explicitly of sorrow or longing or anything, but it it gets you into that really generative state of mind. in terms of dealing with sorrow and longing more explicitly, the act of expressive writing, it's called, where you just take a moment every morning to spend a couple of minutes writing things down, writing down what's bothering you that time, um, and not trying to write it in any amazingly crafted way, like you could throw it away two seconds after you're done, um, but we know that the act of, of just naming our troubles, our sorrows, or longings, um, we know from the research by uh, by the psychologist James Pennebaker that it has kind of astonishing benefits of improving our sense of well being, lowering our blood pressure, mm. um, helping us become more successful at work. All, all these kind of unbelievable findings. So those are two things that people could do right away.
0: I know this is something you've you've mentioned before that perhaps it was during the pandemic your morning routine began maybe just reading a poem or just trying to start with some simple act of of being present to something artistic or beautiful?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I became um, pretty immersed in the poetry of uh, Jalal al-Din Rumi, who was mm-hmm. the 12th century Sufi poet, who's now, I think, the best-selling poet in America, mm. by the way. Um, and he has this one poem, I won't be able to get the exact words, but it basically says to um, to... He says something like, Every morning we wake up empty and frightened. Um, and then he says something like, Don't go to the study and immediately start working. Instead, let the beauty we love be what we do. Um, take down a musical instrument, he says, and let the beauty we love be what we do. So I really started by, I, I started my mornings by listening to music. Um, I started asking people on Twitter to tell me their favorite art accounts, and I started following all the art accounts uh, that I could find. And then I started this practice of choosing every morning a favorite painting and taking the time to pair it with a poem or an idea that I loved and sharing that out on my socials. And I would do all of that before I even started writing. And it was quite time consuming, but it actually was so helpful like it put me into exactly the right state of mind um, and also helped me connect with a community of people who were on that same frequency too Mm. Um, so yeah that that's something i hope i'll be doing forever
0: the poem the guest house by rumi is one that that i love so much and rumi writes this being human is a guest house every morning a new arrival a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows. So much of of what you said, I feel, comes through in in those lines as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Oh my God, he's so good. (laughs) He's so good.
0: Well, as we close our time, I, I wonder if there's been anything else about writing this book on bittersweetness that that surprised you or that you wanted to share with us as we, as we started to say goodbye?
1: I guess the part that surprised me most is I did not really understand going into this inquiry, how much, what what I now believe to be true that in, uh, how do I say this in sort of mainstream intellectual culture, um, I think we set up a false dichotomy between the secular and the spiritual, between atheists and believers, and the way to cut through that false distinction is to understand this spiritual longing that is at the heart of all human nature and just expresses itself differently and with different manifestations, but it's the same heart that we all have. And I I had no idea of that going in, I wasn't expecting that, I wasn't looking for it. But there's a a parable that I talk about at the beginning of the book. It's a a Hasidic parable Mm. of a a rabbi who notices that a member of his congregation, an old man, um, seems very indifferent (laughs) to his talk of the divine. Um, And then he sings for the man a song of yearning, a song of longing. He just, he hums a few bars of this melody. And the man listens and says, oh, now I understand what you were trying to teach. Because now I feel an intense longing to be united with the Lord. And, um, and I read that, I'm like, oh my God, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like that old man. Um, yeah, that's all.
0: Mm. I've been speaking with Susan Kane, writer and lecturer and author of Bittersweet's how sorrow and longing makes us whole. What a what a wonderful conversation, Susan. Thank you so much for spending some time with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan, and for having conversations on this wavelength. I so appreciate it.
0: Well, that's it for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks for joining us on Life Examined, and we'll see you next week.